Well, that's the end of the notices, so now let's come to our main reading. Today we're in Romans 3, uh, 1 to 8. And it says this. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that God may come, good may come? as some people slanderously charges with saying, their condemnation is just. Well, we're going to have a look at that passage in a moment. Just before we do, there's a couple of things to mention. At the end of the sermon, there's a question time. That all takes place in the live chat. I'll explain that when we come to it, but I want you to know that the question time will be happening so you can be thinking that the opportunity is there, so you can be thinking of what questions you might want to ask as the sermon unfolds. So do be thinking of some questions to ask at the end. There's also a sermon outline that appears in the description box. You can download that and have a look at that, or you can ignore it. It's up to you, whatever serves your purposes best. And then finally, and most importantly, let's ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, as we reflect on the comments that Paul makes here and the objections that, or the possible objections that he raises, we pray, Lord, that in all this we might appreciate more your plan your fulfilment of it and the motivation behind it we pray lord as we reflect on these things it might give us a greater assurance both of who you are that you are and the quality of your character and also the assurance that we have that our salvation is fixed and secure amen The Bible splits the world into two groups of people. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. The Jews are God's people and their father is Abraham. While the Gentiles, they include everybody else. However, the Jews, or to use their original name, the Israelites, were chosen by God to be a priesthood to the rest of the world. The intention was... That as God's people lived under God's word, they would act out this mediatorial role for the whole world. The Gentiles would look at the Israelites and because of their obedience would bring glory 
to the God of Israel. But as we've been working our way through the book of Romans, it seems Paul may be collapsing any distinction that there is to be made between the Jew and the Gentile. In Romans 1, we've seen that since God's righteousness has been revealed and salvation is now available, it has implications for anyone who rejects God's salvation. That is to say, in the revealing of God's righteousness through Jesus comes with it God's wrath. At first, it might seem that Paul is targeting the Gentiles here, particularly Gentiles as idolaters, who in place of worshipping the Creator, give the glory he deserves to parts of the creation. But could the same case be made for humanity as a whole, including Israel? After all, they're well known for worshipping a golden calf and turning from God to worship Baal. And so are the Jew and the Gentile standing alongside one another in hostility to God as they give his glory to part of his creation? Well, in Romans 2, Paul begins to make his case against the Jew. First, he argues the Jew has failed in his priestly role to the Gentile because the nations blaspheme God's name because of the hypocrisy of the Israelites. Then he explains, what if the uncircumcised keeps the law? Well, then they're in a position to condemn the circumcised that do not keep the law. To put it another way, when we stand before God to say, well, I've been circumcised, won't be enough. And it's at this point of the argument that we reach Romans 3, that Paul addresses some possible objections against his reasoning. The first objection is, there well, because of what you've said, Paul, there's no advantage to being a Jew and there's no value of being circumcised. To which Paul replies, of course there's an advantage. The Jew has been given the law and been given the sign of circumcision and this gives them an advantage. But possession does not lead to salvation. The law <coughs> has to be applied. Now this is a similar mistake that was made in Jeremiah's day. In Jeremiah 7 verse 4, Jeremiah tells the people, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now the idea behind these words is that God wouldn't let his temple be destroyed. And so since the people of Israel have the temple of the Lord, their enemies will never be able to defeat them. But of course they've overlooked one thing. At this part of Israel's history, the people of God have profaned the temple of the Lord. And God will not allow this to go on. 
he won't allow his people to continue and become remain unpunished. This is Jeremiah's message. The people will go into exile and the land along with the temple will be destroyed so that it can be replanted and rebuilt. Possession of the temple is no advantage if you profane the temple of the Lord. So too possession of the law is not an advantage if you don't apply the law. But having the law was a great position to be in. But as we're seeing, the advantage was never fully taken. The next objection Paul poses is, does the people's unfaithfulness lead to God being forced himself into unfaithfulness? So if the people are unfaithful, faithful, does that mean God ends up being unfaithful? If God punishes people, what of the promises he has made to them? That is to say, if God has promised that Israel will always be his people, and yet they become unfaithful, and so he has to punish them, does he become a liar? Is God guilty of unfaithfulness? In order to explore this, we need to think back to the nature of the promise that God made to his people. And an extremely helpful chapter, one that's worth to be uh, making ourselves familiar with, is Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, God outlines how his promise will play out for his people. It's quite simple. If the people listen to the voice of God, they will be blessed. But if the people do not obey the voice of God... They will be cursed. That's the covenant. It's the covenant that God has made his people. That's the promise that he will keep. So what we see here is for God to remain faithful to his covenant. He will bless his people in their faithfulness. And for God to remain faithful to his covenant, he will curse them in their unfaithfulness. But either way, God remains true to his covenant. We have a tendency to forget that God's first commitment is to his own glory. We see an example of this in Ezekiel 20, the passage that we read earlier on. Ezekiel presents the elders with God's word, in which God retells the story of his relationship with Israel. And a repeated number of times we read of how the people rebelled against God and would not listen to him. And this is all in the context of the mighty acts that God has done for his people, whether it be rescuing them from Egypt, 
providing for them in the wilderness, or giving them a land filled with milk and honey. And in, re each re in response, each time God says, I would pour out my wrath upon them, he doesn't. And he gives the reason why. Is it because of his love for Israel? Is it because they're his people? Is it because they are special to him? Well, the answer is it's nothing to do with Israel. We read of it in Ezekiel 20 verse 9, which says, and it's repeated throughout a number of times, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned, in the sight of the nations among whom they lived. God was patient with his people for so long because had he punished them as they deserved, the people of all the other nations, the Gentiles, would say, the God of Israel is useless. His people have gone into exile and he was unable to protect them. But there's another side to this. In the end, God does pour out his wrath on his people. Because while they remained in the land, they profaned God's holy name by worshipping idols and attributing God's mighty acts to the idols they worshipped. And so God remains faithful to his covenant when he punishes his people according to the covenant he's made with them. And so in the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel, God remains faithful as he judges the people of Israel. <clears throat> At which point another objection arises. If God's righteousness is through, seen through our unrighteousness, then is it fair at all for God to punish our unrighteousness when in the end it serves God's purposes? Well, Paul only needs to make a fleeting comment to dismiss this idea as nonsensical. I mean, if that were true, then there'd be no justice whatsoever. This would suggest God becomes guilty for judging the world. In this passage this morning, Paul has taken a moment to briefly explore some possible objections to what he said so far. But it really is only a slight detour. It's something that Paul will have more to say about when it comes to Romans 9, 10 and 11. But as we come to the end of this morning's sermon, I think it's worth reading in full a comment found in Moose, Douglas Moo's Romans commentary on this passage. The quote that I'm going to read is thoroughly God-centred and it helps us to raise our eyes away from ourselves and see how God is at the centre. Allow me to read it and then we'll finish with a few observations. <clears throat> Too easily do we forget that God's ultimate concern is for his own glory 
and not for our blessing. That his righteousness is beautifully displayed when he judges as well as when he saves. We want to stand on the promises and this is entirely appropriate. But we must not forget that God promises in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament to rebuke and chastise his people for sin as well as to bless them out of the abundance of his grace. What we see in the things that we've been thinking about this morning, as highlighted in this quote, is that God's motivation is driven by his own glory. Of which there cannot be a greater and more appropriate concern. If God's concern is, if his first concern was the blessing of his people, ultimately his plan would soon be thoroughly undermined because his people, whether Old Testament and even New Testament, are still prone to sin. But God has raised up a people that he will save for his glory. This bases our salvation on an extremely secure foundation. Because God will not fail to bring about his own glory. But there's a, a warning that also lingers. God will not allow his name to be profaned. And if his people rebel against him, they will be chastised for the sake of his glorious name. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, that we would bring you the glory that you deserve. And it would be our first desire that we would be careful to think of how we behave and reflect your character as both image bearers and people who you redeemed by the blood of your own son in one sense we pray lord that we wouldn't be a overawed by this task but remember that you've given us your spirit so that we might have the desire and the circumcision circumcised heart that we, we, we require at the same time would we appreciate the responsibility that we have as we reflect your character and have the potential that others see how we live and either profane your name or give you glory. And so we ask, Lord, that you'd help us in all that we do to bring our behaviour in line with our Heavenly Father's. We ask that we would be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect.
Amen. Right, okay. Well, if that doesn't lead to some questions, I don't know what will. We've come to question times. Question time, this is how it works. What we do is, let's put a capital Q in. Put a capital Q in the chat so that I know a question's coming and I don't move on before you've had a chance to type your question and ask it. You can ask a question on anything that we've been thinking about. We've kind of covered a lot. It's a slightly peculiar, um, it's, it is a quite a bizarre passage because Paul is kind of having this possible internal conversation with himself where he's presenting these objections in a quick-fire fashion and almost within those suggestions responding to those objections and it's kind of a little bit here, there and everywhere. But hopefully we've teased out um, the, the general themes and hopefully that come up, has come across. And I think we've nailed that main point, which is ultimately God's plan is for the sake of his glory. And that idea that it makes his plan and our salvation extremely secure. So any thoughts, comments or questions, welcome. There are a number of passages. Well, it's it's a it's a an interesting thing. I think we mentioned Deuteronomy twenty eight today, and Ezekiel twenty that we read in prayer time. There are a number of passages like that that, if you're not familiar with, it's worth just going back and reading over. Obviously, it's it's a a very good and healthy thing to do to work your way through books. Um, as in, you know, to read through Ezekiel, to read through Deuteronomy. But there are a few sort of key passages that are worth just highlighting. Jeremiah 31 is another one. Ezekiel 18 is another interesting one. Um, if you get them, your head wrapped around them, it makes other parts of the passage uh, Bible, like Romans 9 to 11, a lot easier to understand if you've already got those in place. I'll stop talking in case you're struggling to think of questions or formulate questions because I'm talking. I imagine by now you've already guessed the song we're going to sing later on. We have a question on its way. Okay, we're going to wait for this question to come in, but as we wait, don't feel you can't put your question in or at least put a cue in so that we know the questions are coming. 
Okay, so Susie asks, how do we understand God's glory here with what we've understood about God giving Jesus, his son, the glory uh, from John? Okay, let's have a think. I um, so let's I think probably helpful to go to Revelation four verse eleven to set the scene and then we'll take it from there. So Revelation four eleven says Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation 4, verse 11, again, a very helpful, a very helpful verse to get our heads around and be familiar with. So why does God deserve glory, honour and power? Well, the reason is given is because he is the creator. He created all things without exception, and by your will they existed and were created. So you've got three things there. He's the creator, creates everything without exception, and they are created according to his purpose. So they've got a, a purpose behind them. They created according to his will, so they serve their purpose. So when we um, explore this, we have this category of God is the uncreated. He himself is not created, but he is the creator in that he makes everything. So that, that puts him in this unique category. There's nothing, nothing else that fits into that category of uncreated creator. He deserves glory because of that. And if if you think in terms of this, because I, I think there is a tendency, particularly for us in our society, to feel a little bit uncomfortable with anything be given anything being given glory, which is an odd thing because we're quite keen to Yeah, it's an odd thing, but for some reason and we can't really go into that now, but for some reason we don't like the idea that anyone should get glory and it's sort of frowned upon. But if we think in the, in these terms of had God, had God not acted, we would not be here. Had he not acted, the world would not be here for us to exist in. He is the one who has brought everything into existence so when we think in these terms then you kind of think why does God deserve glory it's because he is the uncreated creator now 
that then I guess raises a further question does Jesus deserve our glory well the temptation is to go down the lines of yes he does deserve our glory because he died for our sins but as we've been seeing here this isn't a category um, of why God deserves glory that that's not the kind of reasoning behind why God deserves glory God deserves glory because he's a creator and so actually the question we need to be asking is does Jesus fit into that same category of uncreated creator well when we get to John 1 verse 1 we have those well-worn verse well-worn and deservedly so verse words in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made so we have here Jesus is the uncreated creator all things that were made were made through him so he fits into the same category of as the second person of the trinity the uncreated creator god creates through his word now just for completeness we can add the spirit into this as well it was a spirit that was hovering over the water it was um the spirit who is breathed into humanity to give life we talked about this recently in equipped serve so there we've got father son and spirit all uncreated creators bringing everything into existence therefore father son and spirit deserve glory so i guess first and foremost that's the sort of category we're thinking of when we're thinking in terms of glory Glory is simply something that's given to the one who has created everything without exception. Now, so that's our sort of starting point, but we can then raise the game and raise the bar, as it were, or continue on and explore further implications, which is what you're talking about here, Susie. That God's glory is seen through creation but i guess in some respects that glory is a question has been raised around it because god's creation has been decreated and so the activity that now must take place is the decreated world must be recreated a more familiar um terminology would be thinking in terms of redemption so the world that was created needs to be recreated or redeemed because it's been decreated this is a job for the uncreated creator only the uncreated creator can recreate and so as we work our way through john's gospel the son presents himself as the one who has the power to reverse the effects of the fall and to recreate or redeem the world and so when we get to the likes of john 17 where the let's just read it 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all uh, whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me, your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So there's a sense in here, in, in one sense, it's quite simplistic in the sense that all that's happening is the Father, Son and Spirit are setting out a plan to, as uncreated creator, recreate the world that's been decreated. It's simply more creating, as it were. And as such, we're kind of seeing something in history of what happened prior to history when the world was created that wasn't at first clear to us in the sense that when the father and son when the father son and spirit created the world they did so together but it isn't it isn't clear from genesis 1 that that's the case it's only when we get to John 1 and elsewhere where this becomes uh, further expounded. That it's a father-son-spirit activity of creation. Just in the same way that it's a father-son-spirit activity of recreation. And so in doing so, there's an other person-centeredness, which, which again just heightens this aspect of glory in the sense that the father's bringing glory to the Son, the Son's bringing glory to the Father, and likewise the Spirit is bringing glory to the Father and Son, as the Father and Son bring glory to the Spirit, as they have this interrelatedness, diverse activity of this united plan as they create the world or recreate the world. Hence, Father, Son and Spirit deserve our glory both for creation and recreation but that creation is crucial because it's a redemption has no meaning there's no categories to understand redemption in if creation isn't first in place there's a lot more to be said i'm sure but hopefully that's helpful We've got another question from Maria. Please could you define idolatry in today's culture? Of course. So let me have a think. Just trying to think a succinct way of saying uh, of explaining this. Let's just go for it. Okay, so I think obviously when we think in terms of idolatry, and often when we read the Bible, we're thinking in carved images, images made of stone, other images that have been made of wood and then covered in gold and all that sort of thing. So we're thinking like bowing down to statues, as it were. <clears throat> is something that we kind of don't really see anymore now 
And so the question is, and it has been raised by academics, is the sort of criticism of idolatry actually relevant anymore? You know, this is something that was relevant then, but it's not relevant now. But this is where it's helpful to kind of stop and think more at what is the essence of idolatry. You know, so it's it's um, displayed as bowing down to statues, but actually what's what's the essence of it? And one thing that's helpful to do is to go back to Adam and Eve, because in the garden there were no idols, but Adam and Eve are idolaters. So how could they achieve this position of idolatry despite there were no statues to worship? And it all comes round to, so God says, if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. At which point the serpent comes into the garden and says, has God really said, if you touch the tree, you will die? Now, here's the question. What do Adam and Eve do at this point? Well, this is the point where they begin to think about what God has said. At the question that the serpent has raised about what God has said and they kind of begin to evaluate God's word at which point they raise a question over whether God God's word is true whether God's word is reliable and when they reach out and take from the tree they've decided that God's word isn't true that he isn't faithful to his promises and that when they eat of the tree they won't die now what's happened there is they've attributed God's characteristics or they've not attributed his characteristics correctly so they're beginning to think about God wrongly. And we've, uh, at the past at Trinity, used the phrase, I like to think of God as. So we might put it crudely that Adam and Eve like to think of God as someone who wouldn't kill them for taking fruit from a tree. So at that point we see that actually they've they're now in this realm of idolatry but notice where it's taken place idolatry has taken place in the mind and it all relates to how they think about god and that they think of him incorrectly so that's really helpful now if we wind back to our day and age and we can then think in terms of well how do we see humanity today reflect that same wrong thinking about god and you know you can come across different people who will say different things they might say to oh i like to think of god as a big force out or an energy that's out there and so in their mind 
they are determining what God is like and they're making God in their in the image that they would have him be as without a stone image they're making an image but it's contained in their mind or someone else might say I like to think of God as someone who is all loving you know when it comes to it he will accept everyone into heaven but is that the God who has made himself known? That is, is that how God represents himself? Or is that how we've decided in our mind that we would make God? There's no statue, but the idolatry has taken place in our mind. And that becomes really helpful because actually then it doesn't matter who you talk to you can begin to see the the fact that everyone is committing idolatry because when we take uh, a distortion of God and attribute that to him we're deciding what we think God should be like or is like and we're not letting him tell us what he's like so you might say oh you come across someone else and they say well God doesn't exist well, you simply put that into that phrase of, I like to think of God as not existing. Or, if God did exist, he would stop all the suffering. At which point, again, the person has said, I know better, I'm creating God in the image that I would have him be in, and not letting him reveal himself to us. Now, this at first kind of it seems kind of like well you know people are sort of modeling along and trying to get to know you know their best guess of what god's like and you know isn't it fair enough but if you think about this for a moment we hopefully we don't do this in other people's relationships so imagine if i said to you i like to think of caroline as a six-foot brunette with brown eyes and you know and obviously I could go on and describe what I like to think of Caroline as now everyone who knows Caroline will know she's not six-foot she's not brunette um, and she hasn't got brown eyes so that's where all of a sudden it exposes just how foul this really is you know Obviously, Caroline would be very upset if she thought that's how I hoped her to be or imagined her to be or, or, or thought that's what she should be like. And you can obviously take this further because what when we relate to other people, we want them to tell them tell us what they're like and what they enjoy and what they like to do so that we can reciprocate and respond and relate to them in a dynamic way always changing and moving and and sort of relating to them as we get to know them better instead of dreaming up our own idea of what we would have them be and so actually if that's won't if that is not good enough for our human relationships with one another why would we think that's an appropriate way to respond to god the uncreated creator who deserves our glory and yet 
we don't want him to tell us what he's like. We'd rather try and decide for ourselves. So hopefully that's helpful and hopefully you'll see that idolatry is rife in our culture. It's just not, it is the same in the sense that, you know, when they made the golden calf, they're deciding what they would like God to be like. Um, but they've just taken it one step further. The idea that they've got in their mind, they've then um, turned into a, a real a reality, as it were, in terms of a or a physical thing. Whereas, whereas for us in our culture, we never get past that. Might but the damage has already been done. You know, it doesn't matter that you never make the physical object. The damage has been done. Hope that's helpful. I'll stop there because I've talked for a while and no more questions have come up so unless something does shoot up very quickly I'll probably just move on to the reflection.